Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Luke 16, Luke chapter 16, and reading again at verse 1. Luke 16, and reading again at verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Christopher Nolan is a British film director who's written and directed films that are incredibly diverse and they appear to have absolutely no similarity with what has gone before. In 2014 he directed the film Interstellar. It's a science fiction film. It follows a group of astronauts who are looking to discover a new world as they enter into a wormhole uh, near Saturn. And he followed this in 2017 with his film Dunkirk that depicted the events of the Dunkirk evacuation during the Second World War. They They are two very different films. You would think, are they written and directed by the same person? And something similar happens in Luke 15 and 16. We've got a very straightforward story with a comforting application in Luke 15. And then we have a very strange story with a complex application in Luke 16. This morning we're continuing our studies in stories that Jesus told. And we're looking at the parable of the dishonest manager. And we're going to divide the passage under two headings. We're going to look at the perplexing parable... And then the provocative principles. The perplexing parable and then the provocative principles. So first the perplexing parable. You see that in verse 1 to 8. Here Jesus presents his disciples with a perplexing parable. We can start by noting the setting at the beginning of verse 1. Jesus, you remember, is making his way to Jerusalem and to the cross where he will lay down his life as a sacrificial offering for his people. And he has just told three parables to the Pharisees who were grumbling about him eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's spoken about a man who held a great celebration over being reunited with a lost sheep. He then spoke about a woman who held a great celebration over being reunited with one coin. And then he spoke about a father who held a great celebration over being reunited with a lost son. And as he tells these stories, Jesus is emphasizing to the Pharisees, the social and religious conservatives of his day, that there is rejoicing in heaven over just one sinner who repents. He now tells his disciples, his followers, a story in verse 1. But while it is primarily addressed to the disciples, if you jump down to verse 14, you see that the Pharisees are still listening in. Now, having noted the setting, we can hear the story in verses 1 to 8. Jesus starts by identifying a crisis. Verses 1 and 2, he draws attention to a rich man who had a manager. He had an administrator of his estate. And charges, accusations are brought against the manager to the rich man. It's reported to the rich man that his manager is squandering, mismanaging, wasting his possessions. And so the rich man calls in the manager 
and he asks him a question. What is this I hear about you? And having asked the question, the rich man makes a decision. He tells the manager to turn in the account of his management. He's saying, bring in the books. Bring in the financial records. And he says, I want you to bring in the books. I want you to bring in the financial records. I want you to bring in the record of your management because you can no longer be manager. The rich man takes a prompt and decisive action when it comes to dealing with this troublesome employee. Like Alan Sugar, he turns to this manager who's not up to the job and he points the finger at him and he says to him, you're fired. You're fired. You're out of business. You've you've got a few days to work your notice. We move from the crisis to the craftiness in verses 3 to 7. The soon-to-be former manager is facing a dilemma. Verse 3, he thinks to himself, he speaks to himself. And as he does so, his thoughts turn to what he'll do next. And he realises that he is not strong enough to dig. He is not strong enough to engage in manual labour. At the same time, he is too proud to beg. He is not going to become a charity case. The question is, what can he do? How can he support himself in the future? And he eventually comes to a decision. Look at verse 4. He continues speaking to himself and he says, I have decided what to do. Kind of like, I've got it. I've got my light bulb moment. And he says that the outcome of the decision that he has come to is that he will be received by people into their houses once he's removed from his management position. And after reaching his decision, we see his dealings, verses 5 to 7. He knows there's no time to lose, there's not a minute to spare, and so he summons all his master's debtors one by one. Not one of them is missing out. And he asks the first one how much he owes. The man tells him that he owes a hundred measures of oil, and he says to him, go quickly, take your account, and write 50. He summons the next And he asks him how much he owes. And this man says that he owes a hundred measures of grain or wheat. And he says again, go quickly, take your account and write 80. Now as we look at the man's dealings, we can see really how, how crafty, how manipulative he was. He asks each man to tell him how much he owes. Now he knows how much they owe. He was the keeper of the books. But he wants these men to remind themselves of just how much they owe, just how bad and big the debt is. And he tells them to write the rearranged figure on a piece of paper with their own hand. He is implicating them in the crime. These men are now bound to this man by a sense of gratitude, a sense of goodwill, that their debts, their bills are being lowered, and even if that goodwill should fade over time, they will still be bound to the man because of their implication in the crime, because they themselves were involved in cooking the books, because they themselves, with their own hand, wrote the new figure. A very clever man. A very crafty man. These men are going to have no other option but to take this man into their houses, into their homes, once he finds himself out of a job. We move from the craftiness to the commendation in verse 8. The rich man becomes aware of what his manager has done and he commends him. Now please note, he doesn't commend his character. 
This is a dishonest man. And it says that in verse 8. He is dishonest. But the rich man still commends him for his shrewdness. For his astuteness. For his wisdom. This man had given careful thought to his future. And as he thought about his future, he acted in the present. And with that, Jesus finishes this most perplexing, bamboozling parable. And so we move, though, from the perplexing parable to the provocative principles in verses 8 to 13. Where Jesus now presents his disciples, his hearers, with some provocative principles. He's just told this very strange story. A story about a man facing a crisis. He's about to lose his job and he he doesn't know how he's going to earn any money, how he's going to get any shelter, how he's going to get any security. It's a crisis moment. And Jesus has gone on to speak about the man's craftiness as he sought to manage the crisis, as he sought to secure a future for himself. And then Jesus spoke about the commendation of this man for the shrewdness that he had shown, for the fact that he had looked at the future and acted in the present. And no doubt the poor disciples, and maybe you felt this way as well, were scratching their heads at this perplexing parable, this strange story, and they're thinking to themselves, what's this all about? We understood the story of the lost sheep. We understood the story of the lost coin. We understood the story of the lost son. But what is this all about? And so in verses 8 to 13, Jesus makes some statements as he goes about applying the parable to the lives of his disciples. And he starts by saying that unbelievers are often more shrewd than believers or disciples. Look at verse 8. Jesus speaks about the sons of this world, the sons of this age, a reference to those who are not citizens of the future kingdom of God. And he speaks about the sons of light, a reference to believers, a reference to disciples, a reference to citizens of God's future kingdom. And Jesus says, look at it very carefully. Please have your Bibles open, friends, if you've got a Bible. Jesus says that the sons of this world, the sons of this age, unbelievers, often exercise greater shrewdness, greater wisdom in their dealings with people than believers do. The sons of the age to come. Jesus says that the sons of this world, unbelievers, often live in the present, in the light of the future, more than the sons of light. Believers do. Jesus says that the sons of this world, unbelievers, often give greater attention to their earthly well-being than the children of light, the children of the world to come, Believers do when it comes to their eternal well-being. Jesus continues by saying that a disciple is to use the resources to secure eternal friends. Look at verse 9. Jesus starts by saying, I tell you, an expression that he reserves for his very important, very significant, very solemn sayings. A saying that cannot be ignored, a saying that cannot be put to one side. And he tells his disciples to make friends 
by means of unrighteous wealth, by means of mammon, by means of their material possessions. He is telling his disciples to use whatever they have at their disposal for the benefit, the well-being, the welfare of others, especially their eternal well-being, their eternal benefit, their eternal welfare. And Jesus says that unrighteous wealth, mammon, material possessions will fail. Note he doesn't say if they fail, he says when they fail. Jesus is saying a day is going to come when all your money, everything in your bank account is not going to be with you. You're not going to have access to it. And he says that when that day comes, those friends whom they made by means of their unrighteous wealth, their money, their material possessions, will welcome them into the eternal dwellings. Jesus goes a little further and he says that a disciple is to show faithfulness in the small things as well as the big things. Look at verses 10 down to 12. He says that the person who is faithful in very little will be faithful in much. If they are trustworthy in the small things that nobody notices, it's very likely that they will be trustworthy in the big things that everyone will notice. He then says that if a person is dishonest when it comes to very little, they will be dishonest when it comes to much. If they are not trustworthy in the small things that people notice, they will not be trustworthy in the big things that people will notice. And he then says that if a person hasn't been faithful when it comes to unrighteous wealth, the material possessions that they presently have, How can they expect to be entrusted with true riches, eternal possessions, the eternal reward of the age to come? And he then says that if a person hasn't been faithful in what is another's, then how can they expect to receive something of their own? Everything that a person has, has been loaned to them, lent to them by another. It has been loaned to them, it has been lent to them by God himself. Every person is simply a steward of what God has entrusted to them. And if they haven't been faithful with what God has entrusted to them in this world, then how can they expect to receive anything in the world to come, the age to come, the life to come? And finally, Jesus says that a disciple cannot serve two masters. Look at verse 13. He says that it's impossible for a person to serve two masters. They will either hate one and love the other, or they will be devoted to one, they will cling to one, and they will despise, they will treat the other with contempt. And as he says this, Jesus specifically says that it is impossible for a person to serve God and money. He is presenting his disciples with a very stark choice. They can either be mastered by God or they can be mastered by something or someone else. But it's impossible. It is impossible for them to give their full service, their full allegiance to both. Now let's apply this. As we consider these verses, friends, we are being confronted with the comparison that Jesus makes. The comparison that Jesus makes. That's what we see in Luke 16. Jesus speaks about shrewdness, 
speaks about wisdom, speaks about living in the present in light of the future. And he says that the unbeliever will often live with a greater focus on their earthly future than the believer will when it comes to their eternal future. You get that? The unbeliever will often live with a greater focus on their earthly future than the believer will when it comes to their eternal future. That's important, friends, for us to reflect on. J.C. Ryle writes, The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The Christian... The disciple of Jesus is to be wise, they are to be shrewd in their living, where they live in the present with their eye on the future. What a Christian does with their time, what a Christian does with their possessions, what a Christian does with their resources in the present ought to be governed, ought to be directed, ought to be controlled by their focus on eternity, by their focus on the age, the life to come. I remember a a professing Christian coming up to me one day and complaining about their minister. It's amazing how people love to complain about ministers. Ministers are the easiest people in the world, it seems, to complain about. And this person was complaining about their minister, who was very enthusiastic. Now, just as an aside, this minister was not in his 20s or 30s, straight out of college, full of zeal and enthusiasm. He was in his mid to late 50s. But he had such zeal, he had such enthusiasm... And he wanted his congregation to be the same. And this person, this member of his congregation, was complaining to me and saying, our minister wants us to be too heavenly minded. That was his own words. Now the reality was that this professing Christian's focus was solely on the present. And living for the present. And enjoying the present. This world was home for him. And he didn't want to think about the world to come. Now, can I ask you, friend, what about you? What about me? Are we those who are living in the present in light of the future? Or is it possible that your unbelieving friend, your unbelieving colleague, your unbelieving spouse might give more thought to a future that isn't guaranteed than you are to a future that has been guaranteed, promised to you by God himself. Is it possible that your unbelieving friend might be thinking more about tomorrow than you are about God's tomorrow? That's the comparison Jesus makes. We're not just confronted, though, with the comparison that Jesus makes, but also the command that Jesus issues. Look at verse 16 again. Jesus commands his disciples to make friends with people using their material possessions. And he says that they are to do so with the expectation of spending eternity with such people. And again, that's important for us to reflect on. Dale Ralph Davis writes, You can use earthly resources to benefit people. So that at the last, they will be overjoyed and thrilled to welcome you into eternity. Davis continues, 
Jesus seems to envision folks who pre-arrive you in eternity and who are delighted when you come because of how you help them. Do you ever think of that? The thought of being welcomed into eternity by those whom you opened up your home to, those whom you opened up your life to, those whom you really invested in. Can you just imagine you coming through the gates of heaven and you're welcomed by that person who maybe was a bit of a drain on your time and your resources in this life and they are saying to you at the gates of heaven, I am so glad you're here and I'm glad you're here because I'm here because of you. Or just imagine being greeted in glory by a group of Eastern Europeans who you never knew, who you never met. But you sacrificially gave your time and you sacrificially gave your money and you sacrificially gave your resources to support the work of the, even the European Mission Fellowship or the work of the Slavic Gospel Association. Or just imagine being greeted by an Iranian Christian at the gates of glory. And they say to you, I'm so glad you're here. You never met me. But the way that you gave to the work of Release International, the way that you gave to the work of the Barnabas Fund, the way that you gave to the work of Steadfast Global, that was such a support to me. And I'm glad you're here. What a thought. Henry Morrison was a missionary to China and his health eventually broke. He gave all that he had as he ministered in China as a missionary, his health, his money, everything. And eventually he had to return home and he was returning home to die, returning to the United States. And he found himself on a boat that was also the president of the United States was also on the boat with them. And they docked in New York Harbour. The President of the United States got off the boat first. And there was a fanfare. There were crowds. There were bands playing. There were banners. Everybody was delighted to see the President. Well, he got off. His entourage got off. All the other passengers got off. And then Henry Morrison gets off. And, and there's no band playing. And there's no banners unfurled. In fact, no one was even there to meet him off the boat. And Henry Morrison said, I just closed my eyes. And it's as if God gave me a vision and I was standing at the pearly gate. And all of a sudden from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west came tens, no hundreds, no thousands of Chinese who had come to faith in Jesus because of my ministry. And he thought, I am going to have a grand welcome. I'm just not home yet. Now today, Jesus is, as it were, acting as our financial advisor. And he's saying to each and every one of us, make a sensible investment. Use your money and your resources wisely. Make an investment that will be celebrated in eternity. Use whatever you have, whatever you've been entrusted for the cause of the kingdom. As we consider these verses, we're not just confronted with the comparison that Jesus makes and the command that Jesus gives, but also the character that Jesus commends. 
We see that again in Luke 16. Jesus commends the person who is faithful in very little things. And he says they will be faithful in the big things. And then he says he condemns the person who is unfaithful in the little things. And he says that they will be unfaithful also in the big things. And that's important for us to reflect on again. Jesus is looking for disciples who will show a faithful character in the small things that everyone sees and everyone notices. And he's looking for disciples who will show a faithful character in the big things that everyone sees and that everyone notices. Jesus is looking for people who will be faithful wherever God has put them. And not only wherever God has put them, but with whatever God has provided them. Once again, quoting J.C. Ryle, Jesus would have us know that little things are the best tests of character. And the unfaithfulness about little things is the symptom of a bad state of heart, a bad spiritual condition, a bad character. Jeff Thomas illustrates this principle with an amusing story. He tells a story about a young boy Two young boys, actually, who, who were converted. They made a profession of faith and they met with the elders of their church. And the elders of the church, as elders are prone to doing, said to these young boys, well, what evidence is there in your lives that you are, that you are different, that you have been converted? And one of the boys said, well, I'm different now because when I used to be told to brush my teeth, I would run the toothbrush under the tap and just put it back. In the holder. But now, now I brush my teeth. And the other boy turned around and said, Well, I remember when my mum and dad would make me take my vitamin pills and I would flush them down the toilet. And now I take my vitamin pills. Now we think, Oh, that's stupid. But they were being faithful in the small things. The things that maybe nobody noticed or paid attention to. Are you someone who shows faithfulness in the big things that everyone sees and everyone notices? And are you faithful in the small things that no one sees and that no one notices? Does does your Christian character shine through, friend, wherever you have been placed by God and with whatever God has provided you with? The character Jesus commends. And then finally, we don't simply see the comparison that Jesus makes, the command that Jesus gives, the character that Jesus commends. We also see the caution that Jesus issues. That's what we see in Luke 16. Jesus speaks about money. Sensitive subject. Delicate subject. I was talking with a retired minister a few weeks ago. uh, And he was saying to me, I never preached about money. Nobody wants to preach about money. But Jesus preaches here about money. And he issues this closing caution to all those who are listening to him. That it is impossible to serve two masters. A person must either serve God or they must serve something or someone else. And in this context, Jesus says that is money, material possessions. And that's important, friends, for us to reflect on too. In 1979, Bob Dylan 
Donnie will go ballistic at me for saying this because Donnie doesn't like me mentioning Bob Dylan, but I'll mention Bob Dylan anyway. But Bob Dylan recorded a song entitled, Gotta Serve Somebody. Gotta Serve Somebody. And he spoke about all the different kinds of people in the world. That you can be a rich man, you can be a poor man. You can be a moral person, you can be an immoral person. You can have lots of things, you can have very few things. You can be known by everyone, you can be unknown to everyone. But you've got to serve somebody. And he sings in the chorus, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And that is the issue that has been presented to everyone who's here today. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are a disciple of Jesus or not, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. My friend, if you are not a professing Christian today, I want to ask you the question, who or what are you going to serve? Are you going to serve your bank balance? Are you going to serve your job? Are you going to serve your family? Or are you going to serve the Lord? Who or what are you going to serve? But maybe, maybe I also have to ask a question of every professing Christian in this building. Who or what are we serving? Are, are we serving the Lord or something or someone else? Is it lip service that we are giving to Jesus? But the reality is something or someone is coming before him. Maybe a family member. Maybe our health. Maybe our job. Maybe our bank balance. This morning we have this wonderful opportunity to serve the God who is revealed to us in Jesus. And you know what this God did? This God who is revealed in Jesus became temporarily poor so that his people might become eternally rich. And my closing appeal to each and every one of us, and I am, I am including myself in this, is let's not waste this wonderful opportunity. Let's not grudge this wonderful opportunity. Let's not grumble and complain about this wonderful opportunity. Let's not put off this wonderful opportunity. You and I, friends, have a wonderful opportunity to serve this God who is revealed to us in Jesus. And we have been given this wonderful opportunity to serve him in this life. As we simply prepare to serve him in the life to come. And can I say that if you're not happy about serving him in this life. It may be an indicator that you are on a path that is indicating that you're not going to be serving him in the life to come. So brothers and sisters, friends, let's not waste this opportunity. Let's pray.